Uh, you have your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus, and we'll be reading the whole of chapter 25, the whole of chapter 25, so that's Exodus and 25. Let's pray before we come to the reading of God's Word. Now, Lord, we remember the story of the woman with the flow of blood that we read at the outset. She came to you after bleeding 12 years. She was outcast. She tried everything else. She spent all, of, all that she had. She'd gone to other healers, but instead of healing, she was made worse and worse. And with a trembling hand, she just touched the hem of your garment, thinking that even the briefest touch with you would, give, would bring her cleansing, wholeness, and life. And Lord, we simply take her stance this afternoon. Lord Jesus, would you just give us enough faith to touch the hem of your garment, that power may come from you to us, to make us whole, to make us clean, and give us life. Do it by your holy word, for your own great name's sake. Amen. So Exodus 25, this is the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins and acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and the breastpiece. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a moulding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And I shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the end, one end and the one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. 
and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings and you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence of on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes and its flower shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it and three cups made like almond blossoms each with cults and flour on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms each with cults and flour on the other branch so for the six branches going out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and the calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single hammered, single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold and see that you make them after the pattern for them which has been shown you on the mountain. Amen. I'm, glad you, I'm sure you're glad to come and hear about calyxes this afternoon. But it is the, word, it's the inherent word of God. It is his inherent word. And we're beginning another section on the book of Exodus where God gives instruction for the building of the tabernacle and its various furnishings and equipment. And as we will see as we begin to work our way through the material today and in the coming weeks, God gets very specific. There are detailed directions. And at verse 9 is very clear. It's God who said it. It's on scale and proportion on the materials to be used, on the construction methods deployed, for everything from the priest's clothing to each table, altar, curtain, pillar, even the tongs and the bowls and the spoons, which would be used in the sacrificial rites performed in the tabernacle. Now, if you're anything like me, Maybe you've managed to stick this far with Exodus, all the way through the case laws and the civic code of chapters 21 to 23, 
and you've made it this far. And we get to 25, and you see all the detail about how many cubits the Ark of the Covenant has to be and where the rings and the poles should go and the acacia wood needed for the table and the precise decorations of the lampstands. And unless you're an interior designer here this afternoon, maybe your eyes finally begin to glaze over. And I must confess, I read this and my heart didn't jump. But it is God's inherent word, and we're committed to preaching the whole counsel of God. Some people attempted, as even some commentaries do, I went to find a commentary on one then, and it wasn't there, because they jumped ahead to chapter 32, to that juicy material dealing with the golden calf. And I'm sure some preachers much more worthy than I have done just that. Not for any counsel apart from we preach the whole counsel of God, I'm going to ask you to resist that temptation and to hang in with me. Hang in with me and with Exodus and take another look at these instructions from God on the building of the tabernacle. They're actually really rich in symbolism and meaning. And they point to gospel truths which we still very much need to hear. Think of the tabernacle and its sacred furniture, a bit like a giant pop-up book. Do you remember pop-up books? We've, I think we brought them for our kids. If maybe you read one yourself, or maybe you read them to your children or your grandchildren. You turn the page, you know when you turn the page and suddenly this thing jumps out at you. And it's like a three-dimensional kind of image, which helps tell the story. And then you have to have a degree in engineering to fold it all back together again so it can jump out at the next person and surprise them and then reach for the sellotape when you break it. No, but, no I, I digress. But those, they, they kind of help get the point across. That thing that jumps out and hits you actually helps get the point across. Which I think is what God is doing with the tabernacle and the various items of furniture within it. If you like, and don't mind the poor illustration, it's like turning the pages of a pop-up book and as each image leaps forward, each piece of furniture comes to view. The storyline of his saving grace for sinners fulfilled in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, becomes clearer. So let's have a look at chapter 25. By way of preface, the introductory section to this entire part of the book of Exodus in verses 1 to 9. God instructs Moses to have the people of Israel make contributions so that the tabernacle can be built. And then verses 3 to 7, we have a list of the required material. But then verse 8, there's a stunning statement there in verse 8, let them make a Think of what, about what God is telling Moses. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That I may dwell in their midst. God's people lived in tents as they made their way through the wilderness. And God is saying he will come to dwell among them in a tent of his own. That was what the tabernacle was. God's people were dwelling in tents in the wilderness and God is saying, 
he will come to dwell in a tent of his own. Obviously, he does not mean that God will be contained within the tabernacle, but he's saying at this point in the history of redemption, in redemption's history, God's presence would be especially known and enjoyed among his people in this sacred place. God in a tent made by human hands. So that's staggering and full of gospel significance because then we understand, don't we better, John 1. John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And we know that that word dwelt, the better word for it is tabernacled. God pitched his tent among us. God in flesh in Jesus Christ. So the one to whom the tabernacle points us is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the true meeting place of God with man. So the, so the, so the tabernacle is full of significance and points us to Jesus. Jesus in whom alone we have access to the Father. That is what our Lord meant when he said, no one comes to the Father but by me. He, another way of saying it could be that Jesus is the true meeting place where you can know God. So the tabernacle at this point in redemption history is preaching Christ to us. But actually so do each of the articles, the sacred utensils, the furniture, like images in a pop-up book, each item of furniture, tabernacle furniture, is designed to help us understand better redeeming grace. And I want us to see that through th three themes. First of all, the theme of purity in verse 10 to 22. Then the theme of provision, and finally the theme of presence. We'll come to those, but we'll start with the theme of Purity, verses 10 to 22. God tells Moses to have an ark of acacia wood built. An ark is an old English word for a box. And you see the dimensions in verse 10. I think it worked out at 3 foot 9 long, 2 foot 6 wide, and as high as it is wide. And in verse 11, it's to be completely encased in gold. This is a thing of extraordinary beauty and incredible worth. Then in verses 12 to 15, there's a comparatively long section. If you were like me, you may have scratched your head a wee bit on that one. But there's details taken up with the rings, the acacia, wood poles, and exactly where they have to go. Why so much attention to the rings and the poles that and never to be removed. Well, the rings and the poles fed through them is a mechanism by which the ark is to be carried in such a way so that human hands never touched the ark. It was designed very perfectly, very precisely, so that human hands need never touch the ark itself. And then inside the ark in verse 16, 
Moses is to place the testimony that God gave him, which are the, the stone tablets bearing God's law. So put all of that together. You have this box that contains the law of God, its rich decoration, the poles that allow it to be carried, yet never touched. It all points to holiness. The law of God, the glory of the thing. No one can touch it. It is holy. It's a thing that marks the purity of God. This is a sacred, pure object. This box, with all its details, represents the presence of God in His holiness. His purity as lawgiver and judge. In 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant was being transported on an ark. And you know it well, but Uzar put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the Bible tells us the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzar, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died. So the Ark of the Covenant represents the holiness, the purity of God. But just drop down to verses 17 to 22 and see, notice something about the covering that's placed on top of the ark. There's a flat platform of gold, which is called the mercy seat, which sits on top of the whole thing. And on either side, there are these two angelic cherubim. They face one another, looking toward the mercy seat, and their wings are swept up over it, hiding it from view. The very last time we met cherubim was in Genesis 3, when Adam had transgressed God's law, when Adam fell into sin and all mankind with him, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And blocking the way back to Eden, back to the presence of God and fellowship with God, blocking the way back were placed cherubim, to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, the cherubim are the guardians of the place of fellowship between God and man, which is the role that the mercy seat itself plays. Verse 22, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So do you see that, like Eden, this is now the meeting place of God with man, which is why the significance of the cherubim. It's the focal point of the entire tabernacle, which is why it's dealt with, first of all, the mercy seat. Elsewhere in the Bible, we meet cherubim that always support or surround the throne of God. Psalm 99, verse 1, for example, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. 2 Kings 19 is another one. 2 Kings 19 verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made heaven and earth. 1 Chronicles 13 verse 6. And David and all Israel went up to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above 
the cherubim. In Ezekiel 12, the prophet is allowed to gaze not into the temple, but into the holy place of heaven itself. He sees the throne of God and four cherubim. Revelation 4, the four living creatures that echo Ezekiel's vision, four cherubim surround the throne of God. So the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim is the symbolic throne of God in his sovereignty and glory and holiness and purity, dwelling in the midst of the camp of his people. So this ark, this golden box that resides within the most holy place, the inner court of the tabernacle behind the great curtain, which is also adorned with cherubim, images of cherubim, and the only place person allowed to come into the most holy place was the high priest once a year. And on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, bringing with him the blood of the Lamb, where he would pour out on the mercy seat to make atonement for Israel. Last time in Exodus 24, we saw Moses do something very similar. If you remember on the plain, under the shadow of Mount Sinai, Moses took blood and he threw it against the altar, symbolically applying the blood to God himself to make atonement to satisfy God's justice. Well, here is that same principle being enshrined permanently and regularly in the worship and practice of Israel. The blood is applied to the mercy seat, to the throne of God. Now, everything about the ark so far has screamed exclusion. The law contained within the ark condemned everyone who broke its statue, statutes. The gold encasing it speaks of splendor and majesty. The cherubim bring back Eden and our exclusion from the presence of God because of our sin. And the mercy seat is considered to be itself the throne of God closed from view by the wings of angels. The message is really clear. The purity of God. It's the, this is speaking of the purity of God. The purity of God shuts us out. But this is the place where atonement is to be made. Right there on the throne. Right there between the cherubim. Right there, impure sinners like you and I are pardoned and reconciled to God. The ancient Greek version of the Old Testament translates the word used here for mercy seat with propitiation. That word that means sacrifice that satisfies God. And that word is normally only used for the work of the Lord Jesus. The Ark of the Covenant is designed to remind us that God is pure and holy and we are not. And you won't understand the gospel unless you understand that, that there is a gap. God is holy, but I am not. It's the start, it's the start of the gospel. The Ark of the Covenant reminds us that God is holy and we are not. And then it preaches Christ to us by whom the great gulf fixed between us and God is bridged. Jesus is the propitiation, which is the word 
for the mercy seat, for our law-breaking. Jesus is the Lamb whose blood enters the most holy place of heaven itself into the real throne room of God to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. We no longer need a high priest to enter into an earthly tabernacle year after year to make atonement for us. We no longer rely on sinful men making a symbolic sacrifice that has to be repeated next time. Hebrews 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, there's our word, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So you see, even this obscure chapter reminds us that it is finished. Here is an anchor of the faith, for the faith, of the weakest of the, for the, even the weakest doubting Christian. Look at yourself and you may see many reasons for doubt, many grounds to wonder if perhaps you're a child of God at all. But look at the mercy seat where Jesus went for you, where Jesus poured out his blood for you. There God is satisfied and the work is done. Because of him, you're accepted in the beloved. Perfect atonement eternal redemption, no more sacrifices required, no work of ours to find acceptance with God needed. He has done it once for all, praise the Lord. So first of all, there's this theme of purity, the purity of God, but the purification that Christ accomplishes. So the secondly, if you look at verses 23 to 29, the theme of provision. Purity, then provision. In verses 23 through 28, instructions are given to make an acacia wood table slightly smaller than the Ark of the Covenant, but likewise covered in gold. I think I have a, a picture of it uh, from my study Bible. It also has four rings and poles for lifting it. And in verse 29, there are various gold vessels made for the table, including flagons and bowls for drink offerings. And in verse 30, the bread of the presence is to be set before God on that tabletop regularly. Now again, remember that this is God's pop-up book. These are images designed to help us understand the storyline of grace. You can thank. So if you picture the scene, on this golden table are various dishes. Among them is a flagon of wine. We know that from Leviticus 23, verse 13. Apparently always kept filled, ready to be used as a drink offering before the Lord. And along it with it, as we saw in our image, the bread of the presence. And Leviticus 24 tells us that the bread of the presence was 12 loaves. One for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, piled into piles on the table. And Leviticus 24, 8 to 9, the priests go in once a week to eat that bread of the presence and replace it 
every week on the Sabbath. The bread of the presence is there to remind the priest of the provision of God for his people. There is one piece of bread for every tribe of Israel. And it's saying that to dwell with God in our midst is to have his promise to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. You see, the Israelites had seen God do that in their own experience. That's why the, the story of Israel is our story. It, point, it gives us a pointer. And they complained of hunger during their trek through the wilderness, and God provided them manna from heaven. Exodus 16. Manna each day of the week, twice on Friday, so, that, so they might have enough for the Sabbath and have rest. And Jesus taught us the same promise that is visually depicted in the bread of the presence. We are not to live in the grip of anxiety or worry. We're not to worry about what we will eat or drink or what we will wear. Our Father in heaven knows our need before we ask him. But rather we are to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to us also. Maybe have you forgotten the promises of God? Living instead day by day with the cold grip of worry holding your heart. Jesus taught us to look with expectation and in faith to our Father to give us each day our daily bread. I wonder how many times do we pray that and mean it? Give us this day our daily bread. Or do we think, I will do that. I can take care of that. And we've grown, I believe, because of plenty to not relying on God. But Paul reminded the Philippians, and we need to be reminded too, that the life of peace, the life that is free from worry, is my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So that bread, that bread of the presence, was a reminder of the provision of God flow in from his presence to his people by his grace. And even that points us to Jesus. Because Jesus is God's provision for our deepest need. In John 6, after our Lord miraculously multiplied the five loaves and the two fishes to feed the 5,000, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never, ne never, never thirst. Maybe it's, it's easy to live a dissatisfied life. To live in the grip of soul hunger that you're unable to satisfy. We all need the bread of life, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. Maybe we've been trying to sate our hunger by entertainment or money, work, family, ambitions, when only Christ can nourish our soul. So we have purity, we have provision. And thirdly, look at verse 31 to 40, presence. We have purity, the mercy seat, provision, 
in the table, presence. God requires a golden lampstand to be built for the tabernacle. Six branches. I tried to find a good image, I couldn't get one. Six branches coming from a central stem, making seven lights altogether. And verse 31 to 35 tells us how this lampstand is to be decorated. It has a base, a stem, cups, and calyxes. Now, my, a, a, a calyx are the leaves that provide a protective whorl around a flower while in bud. I think I got that right. And then there are the flowers and the flames that are set in the flowers themselves. And the whole thing, each of these is made like almond blossom. This is a stylish tree. It really is. But it's meant to remind us of Eden. Where the presence of God, you know, where the presence of God from which humanity was expelled. The number seven is the perfect number. It's a number redolent of deity in the scriptures. And we're told in Leviticus 24, there is to be a constant supply of oil, so the lamp is always burning. It's a picture that the presence of God, his light will never be extinguished. Psalm 104, O God, my O Lord my God, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. John says in his first letter, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Revelation 22, speaking of the new Jerusalem, they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. But this light that shines from God forever shines most clearly in the face of our Lord Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And later on in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Like the tabernacle as a whole, like the mercy seat, like the bread of presence, the lampstand preaches Christ to us. See, we, we live in a dark world. Turn on your TV screens. You do not have to watch for long to see it. I'd got into the habit of not watching the news when I just thought they were... When, when, <laughs> remember back in November when we, all we ever talked about was Brexit? Remember, it's a long time ago now. You've only got to turn your news on to be reminded there's moral confusion everywhere. There's injustice abounding. And we long for light to pierce the gloom. The light of God that has never been extinguished. The light of life that we all need shines only in Jesus Christ because he is the light of the world. To know Jesus is to dwell in the light of the presence of God forever. And though the darkness may seem very dark, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. To go back to my imperfect opening, we have been reading God's pop-up book together. 
the great storyline that each item from the tabernacle helps us see is Jesus. Jesus crucified, risen, reigning. I hope that as you've seen these images, I hope you've grasped something of the grand gospel narrative that if you will go where they point you, they direct you to Jesus. What a comprehensive saviour we have in Jesus. Oh, what a saviour is Jesus the Lord. A saviour who is able to meet our needs. A perfect saviour who is suitable to us. He's a redeemer, able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. Jesus is the only place to meet God. He is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the one who makes atonement at heaven's mercy seat to reconcile you to God. Jesus is the bread of life, the, the soul-satisfying, nourishing bread of life. And Jesus is the light of the world who can pierce our darkness. Do you see? He is the perfect saviour. And this chapter points to him. So that having Jesus, we have the one in whom God supplies all of our needs according to his riches in glory. It's time to train our eyes. Maybe for the hundred thousandth time, but maybe for the first time on Jesus Christ. Let us pray together as we close. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for Jesus. We confess that so often we turn every which way for guidance instead of stepping into the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. Help us to rest on his finished work in his precious name. Amen.